So we want to be super cautious about debt financing. We think it's an incredible industry. Talk about tailwinds versus headwinds. It's only going one direction in our opinion, but that's just a big picture thesis. We have to find a quality operator with great financing and a great market, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, we're willing to take on the uncertainties surrounding when a potential vaccine will be because there is an opportunity for pricing arbitrage right now in that sector. Hi, welcome to Ready to Scale Season 3. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. I'm a real estate investor, syndicator, and operator of multifamily properties. And in this season, we're going to focus on dialogues that drive success. Building real wealth is not a fairy tale nor rocket science, but there's so much to learn. So grab a cup of coffee and join me each week for in-depth conversations with successful real estate investors. Conversations that are designed to help you drive your wealth, investment, knowledge, and lifestyle to the next level. And of course, you can always go to my website, elliperlman.com, to read more about investing passively in multifamily. This is Ellie Perlman broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. And today on a show, I have my dear friend, Hunter Thompson. And we're going to talk about what passive investors should be aware when they are investing during COVID. So Hunter is doing something similar to what I do. He's a syndicator. He's a full-time real estate investor, actually. And he's the CEO of ASIM Capital. He's the host of his own show called Cashflow Connections Real Estate, and that's a podcast that he's hosting, talking about real estate and investing. And he's also hosting as a great event in January 6th till January 8th, which is called 5 Million in 30 Days. And I'm also going to be speaking there. And by the way, in the show notes, we're going to have links to Hunter, his website, and also to the event. And the interesting thing that we're also going to talk about is that Hunter actually raised close to $5.5 million in 30 days during COVID for a recent deal that was, I would say, semi-real estate, right? ATM, which is you know, it's it's in a certain place. It's it's attached probably to certain buildings. So in that sense, it behaves like real estate, it has cash flow, but it's not really in the traditional sense. So without further ado, I would like to welcome Hunter to the show. Hey, Hunter, how are you today? Hey, thanks again. Honor to be on. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's probably your third time on my show, I think, and I've been multiple times on your show. I always see you in the events and conferences that I'm, you know, attending or speaking at. So it's really fun to see you again. You know, I told the listeners a little bit about you. It would be helpful to hear from you about, you know, what are you doing specifically these days during COVID? What do you do? Sure. So just a little bit of background. You know, I started my career as a passive investor. My segue into raising capital, pulling investors together and such was really created because I felt like the world of passive investing was so advantageous. There was likely going to be a huge tsunami of interest into the sector. And this was about 10 years ago before the Jobs Act. So once the Jobs Act happened, it really unlocked a new category of investors, the accredited investors who could access these types of deals online pretty much for the first time ever because of the regulations, if not any other a myriad of other things as well. So when I started creating a thesis around how I wanted to invest for my own personal portfolio and to help my friends and family, like, you know, my mom, my sisters and such, really 
in the heart of the Great Recession, I figured, look, if I can give up a little bit of upside with these cyclical assets and investments, such as hotels or development or land entitlement, I'm willing to give up that upside for predictability of outcome and cash flow. And so my thesis, though it didn't come quickly, it took me about six months to kind of build the network at the understanding, but I basically realized there are investments which are recession resistant. And if you can find investments that perform well or even outperform during economic contractions, your portfolio cumulatively will likely have a high degree of predictability. And also you won't have to deal with the volatility and the emotional uncertainty that comes along with that. So since inception, we have really invested in the mobile home park business, the self-storage business, workforce housing, and more recently, senior living and ATMs. ATMs. And so Mm -hmm. for COVID, yeah, that's right. And so to tie it back to the question, for COVID, our investment thesis hasn't changed drastically because we've been more than willing to give up the upside associated with those more cyclical assets. It's just that the thesis has now been proven quite accurate where you're seeing hospitality get crushed and you're seeing retail have some challenges as well. But the mobile home park business, for example, B and C plus class apartments, the distress that you may have expected with these wildly ahistoric situations has just not happened. So happy to go into more details, but that's just a little bit about the thesis in general. That's very interesting. And so your portfolio is pretty diverse and that's these are the deals that you're bringing to your investors as well, which from what you're saying, I can hear that during COVID, these investments have been performing well because, you know, choosing well. And as you mentioned, focusing on the assets that are actually more resistant to the changes, the cyclicality of the market, because it's well known that it's every real estate market is cyclical. Now it's good. Tomorrow, we know it's not going to be good. And understanding that and choosing the assets that are going to be good when things are going to be bad, because you can choose, you know, it looks like three years ago, two years ago, a year ago, it doesn't matter which asset you chose in, you know, the geography, the size, even the experience of the sponsor. Most investors did, or many investors did well. That's easy to do, right? Because Everyone is making money. The economy is strong. But now you see basically who's performing well and not everyone, you know, is. So that's very interesting. So you mentioned an ATM deal and that's a deal that you raised close to five and a half million dollars in about a month during COVID, which is very, you know, impressive. What made you go for something that was, you know, a bit different, you know, presenting to investors in this ATM deal? not something that most investors would even think about investing. So how do you present something that is, you know, the strategy is new, the the product is new, and it's it's during COVID, no less. Yeah. So I'll talk first to the people that are interested in kind of capital raising and then from a passive investor approach. I think both will be interesting regardless. But the segmentation is that when COVID happened and and the media really started ramping up the concerns and the government lockdown started, we were very transparent about the fact that we were very bearish on what was going on in the Mm -hmm. sense that we communicated to our investors, we actually can't transact right now. There's not enough transaction volume for us to have one of the three things we require for us to feel comfortable moving forward. And one of the three things is the discount to market. Even if there was a 5 or 10 or 15% discount, there wasn't enough transaction volume for us to justify a purchase because 
there was a big discrepancy between buyers and sellers. And we're actually seeing a lot of that today. So what I mean by that is that if collection data is high, even if unemployment data is high, you're anticipating this distress that just simply hasn't hit a lot of these asset classes. So buyers are looking at it going, well, this is a huge recession. I need a big discount. And sellers are going, what are you talking about? We're at 93% collections. We can't meet in the middle. And so for a moment, we basically paused completely. We communicated to investors, listen, I've been through this before. I know what it looks like when fear is about to really constrict a market due to my experience in 2010 or so. There may be an opportunity for distressed assets, but we're not going to be the first to jump in. And so the only deal we've actually done in 2020 is this ATM deal. And I'll explain kind of the recession-resistant component there. But from a business owner perspective, our investors were very appreciative that we were taking a moment to pause and to communicate with them, look, we're very much trying to make sense of this as opposed to to pull the trigger. Then I gave a quick high-level overview of some of the different asset classes we're focused on and how I anticipated them playing out. And you know, with the help of the CARES Act, for example, there's been a lot of government assistance to a lot of these asset classes, particularly senior living, which has its own risks in this environment. But from an ATM perspective, the model is kind of interesting. So the ATM business, it's no stranger to most accredited investors that cash transactions are drastically been reduced or, you know, over the last 30 years or so since the internet has kind of been invented and popularized. Yep. But the key demographic of the ATM business is for those who are underbanked and unbanked. And this represents tens of millions of people in the United States. Now, this is not the typical accredited investor demographic. These are individuals who have a net worth of $500 or so. And so as investors, we have to be very cautious about accurately weighing tailwinds versus headwinds. So everyone knows that technology exists. Everyone understands what PayPal and Venmo is, but that technology is not new, number one, but also it requires a bank account to connect those apps to your finances. Now, what's going on in the banking sector, especially since the Great Recession, is a mountain of regulatory burden that makes it economically unviable to have low balance clients because there's a liability associated with bringing on those clients. And if they're not going to have a significant amount of money in the bank, you can't lend money and make money off of that money that you're lending as a bank. Then something else happened also related to the Great Recession, which is that we've seen completely ahistoric central bank money printing, which has resulted in a perpetually low interest rate environment that I believe is going to take place for decades to come. Yeah, and, and, and really, we're enjoying yeah. we enjoy it as sponsors because we get very cheap loans, but we're gonna pay for it as a society. We're gonna pay for it, you know, and it's gonna be very expensive for us and the future generations. But you're right, I I also can't see the trend going anywhere else but you know, continuing. See how can we increase rates right now? It looks pretty insane, but I totally hear you. Well, that's the thing. And you know, from someone that I'm vehemently opposed to this action. If the action is going to create a situation where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, I'll tell you what side of that I'm not going to be on, right? I mean, I'm, I'm going to play the game in a way that's efficient for the goals that I have for myself, my families, my investors, et cetera. But one of the things that takes place when you have perpetually low interest rates is what Mises refers to as malinvestment. 
everyone makes decisions based on interest rates to some extent, and everyone has to move up a rung in risk to achieve similar returns. So if you're a stock market investor, well, let's go back. Let's say you're a typical person and you don't want to have anything to do with the stock market. In a bank account, you now cannot receive any sort of reasonable return. So you're mm-hmm. forced into right. the stock market. Right. If you're in the stock market, you may be forced into growth stocks or tech stocks. If you're in tech stocks, maybe you're forced into real estate. If you're in real estate, maybe you're forced into venture capital. So it works its way all the way through the system and has a really interesting and weird dynamic. But you're right. If you're a savvy investor, I'm not forced into real estate at all. I'm quite happy and confident here, and I know you are too. So we're able to take advantage of this. But just getting back to the ATM thing, the business model has drastically changed the banking sector because banks no longer can make money lending money because interest rates are quite low. So they've moved over to have a high fee balance sheet and a business model based on fees. So mm-hmm. if you have a $100 net worth, you can't pay $10 a month to keep a bank account. Right. And it's forcing right. more and more people into underbanked and just creating more demand for the product. So that's the thesis of the ATM business. Interesting. And, you know, I I do understand in terms of the business plan, the value add, how you make money in multifamily, you know, obviously you don't need to be a genius to understand, okay, you you buy an apartment building, you push rent. So either it's one of mostly one of two, maybe three scenarios, either expenses are too high, you push them down, either income is too low, you because rents are under market or rents are at market, but you improve you know, the interior, the exterior, add more amenities, do something to increase the value. And then you can justify 5, 10, 15, 20% rent increases. That's basically, I just summed up the entire multifamily value add model in, in a sentence. But how does it work? I'm actually curious, how does it work with an ATM model? I mean, how do you make money as an investor? First of all, I want to make a comment about what you just said, because it's a perfect summary. And it's fascinating because the simplicity of the investment lends itself to an interesting dynamic where you don't have to be a genius to understand real estate, yet it attracts geniuses because of how scalable and lucrative it is. So we've got NBAs and attorneys like yourself, and then little podunk people like me, but both working in the same industry because the real estate sector is so interesting, but you don't have to be a genius to understand it. So whenever I get outside of the world of real estate, I understand that I'm incurring some sort of risk for doing so. Mm-hmm. because there's going to be levels of complexity. Most businesses are far more complicated than real estate. So there has to be a preferred return associated and an increase in IRR associated with it or if I'm going to be interested at all. So now I think it does make up for that, the ATM business and this particular offering that we've been focusing on. But I just want to mention that up front because it's something I take very seriously. Business plan implementation risk must be priced in for it to be compelling. Absolutely. So- The way the ATM business typically works is there's ATM managers that manage the ATM, similar to property managers. There is usually a private equity group like ourselves that provides significant capital for those managers to purchase the ATMs. And then there's the retailers, the physical owners of the property, Vaughn, CVS, McDonald's. And the ATM business kind of bifurcated into two segments. One is the mom and pop owners. This is starting to ring a bell, obviously, that have 5, 10, 20 ATMs spread across mm-hmm. their little city. And you can get really high proportional returns, but it's hard to scale because you're trying to place an ATM. You're trying to go to your CVS and or your medical marijuana thing that's down the street and say, hey, you guys need cash transactions. Here's an ATM. It's very hard to do that because people know about ATMs. But if you do it, 
it's really lucrative, but they aren't interested in taking on investor capital because it's hard to place capital. It's hard to place the ATMs. The other side of the business is the institutional business, and that is very large multi-million dollar placement contracts with, I'll give an example, all of McDonald's and all of the boroughs of New York City. Mm-hmm. That contract exists. And that's the place that we want to participate because it's much more scalable. It's how we allocated $5 million to the space. Now, every five or seven years, that contract will likely expire and you have a competition, a bid, a negotiation process of who's going to own and manage that ATM for the next five to seven years. And that was an opportunity that was presented to us, literally all the boroughs and all the McDonald's in New York. And the contract was awarded to the manager that we work with, and we provide the capital to replace those ATMs. And so when you replace the ATMs, you get economies of scale, branding, you have the ability to sell data analytics, all the new and technology that has been outdated over the last five years. So it's a quick summary. Very interesting. And how would you, you know, I'm thinking about investors and how they invest in real estate during COVID. And obviously, you know, if they've worked with you before, then they trust you, they know that you can, you know, deliver on your projections and and pay them on time. You know, and I was thinking, what do investors need to do during COVID when they want to cut another check for another investment besides the obvious of, you know, vetting the sponsor, making sure you either work with them before or you feel comfortable with that sponsor and talk about their, you know, their current performance on other assets. But what are your thoughts about just, you know, if you could talk to passive investors and give them a piece of advice on how to invest in today's market, whether it's an ATM, real estate, or any other investment that they do usually with a sponsor, with someone who manages you know, the asset, what would that be? So this may not be the most economically viable answer, but there's no reason to rush it. You know, My career, again, started in the peak of the Great Recession, where everyone that I, every conference I was going to, everyone was saying, this is the opportunity of a lifetime back up the truck and you're going to be fine. Here's what's wild about that. If you focus on education and network and figuring out who to trust and who to align with and who to model, you can grow your your network faster than any sort of market recovery, even in the Great Recession. So as an example, the deals I saw in 2014 were better than the deals I saw in 2010. The market had corrected by 30%, but I was able to outpace the market in terms of my knowledge. So I felt so much more comfortable in 2014 that I was doing much more deals in 2014, and I should not have been doing deals the way that they're suggesting in 2010. From an investor standpoint, that's one thing. The other thing is, and hopefully I just set myself up for this, but only people that really understand this industry will make comments like that. You're never going to miss the opportunity. You shouldn't feel rushed. That's the whole point of real estate. It's a multi-generational play. So for people that take a balanced approach and are okay giving up upside and missing the opportunity as if it's moving like a speedboat when the reality is it moves like a barge, those are the people that I want to align with. So that wasn't very technical, but that's hopefully useful. As far as some of the technical things, the template is basically use your investment amount as a metric and act on a proportional basis of how much time you should spend on due diligence. You know, the template is 
trust but verify and use as many third-party verification tools as possible. So as an example, if a sponsor claims to own a property, for $150, you can pull the title of that property and follow the chain of ownership to them personally. That would be appropriate if you're investing $50,000. Now, if you're investing $5 million, like we would, we're going to fly to the properties. We're going to go to multiple mm-hmm. states. We're going to visit the property management companies. We're going to talk to their CPAs and attorneys and insurers and property management. And we're going to go through all the stuff, but on a proportional basis, it's okay because we're talking about mid seven-figure checks. So that's the template. Hopefully that's helpful. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And I also think that in today's market, it's really hard to avoid Google and the information that is there. So even something simple as Googling someone's name can tell you, you know, a lot before you even, you know, spend a dollar on the proper due diligence of looking into the title, etc. So if there was any issue with that sponsor, if they have not been, you know, communicating with investors or not making payments, you're going to see this online because people are very vocal today. They understand the power of social media, the power of Google. And in that sense, I think, you know, if someone's reputation is intact, you're going to see only or mostly positive things on social media and on Google. I truly believe in that. I know it's kind of, it's not very sophisticated to just Google someone's name, but it will tell you a lot about, you know, that person. Where are you heading from now? I mean, you've completed the ATM transaction. What excites you these days? Man, really, when I look at things on a risk-adjusted basis, it really comes down to debt. So I really focus on the the financing piece of these deals before I get into the deep you know nuances of the underwriting model. So the ATM deal, by the way, is unlevered, which is really interesting. The mm. likelihood of loss of principal is quite low because yeah. you can't go through a foreclosure. There's other things that can happen, of course, but that's one of the reasons I really like the deal. Another example of senior living. I'm eagerly looking at that space right now, but we have to be very cautious that the debt is balanced because unlike multifamily, where you have a 50% operating expense ratio, typically somewhere in that range, that's the rule of thumb. In senior living, you usually have a 70% operating expense ratio and you usually have smaller properties. So I know you just closed a massive $80 million asset, which is amazing. One of the reasons you probably like that deal is that if 10 tenants move out, you won't blink. Now, I know you, which means you're going to make the phone calls, you're going to call the manager, you're going to freak out, you're going to get it. But the investors will not notice, right? Yeah. In a it, it 100 move the needle that much right. at that point. Yeah. Exactly. With senior living, most of the opportunities that we've found have been the 75 to 100 unit or 100 bed type of range. And if you have 10 tenants pass away, unfortunately, they don't move out in the world of senior living, but if they pass away, especially if they all pass away at the same time due to COVID or otherwise, you can start having some real serious problems with debt service if you're not really cautious. So we want to be super cautious about debt financing. We think it's an incredible industry. Talk about tailwinds versus headwinds. It's only going one direction in our opinion, but that's just a big picture thesis. We have to find a quality operator with great financing and a great market, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, we're willing to take on the uncertainties surrounding when a potential vaccine will be because there is an opportunity for pricing arbitrage right now in that sector. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I think it's really interesting you know, to hear you talk about a non-traditional real estate deal during COVID and how you think about risk, how you mitigate it, and, you know, kind of the the path that you've taken, you know, so far in the past, you know, decade or so. That was very interesting to hear. 
We've arrived to the lightning round questions. Are you ready? Let's do it. All right. So, Hunter, what's your favorite hobby? What makes you forget, you know, spreadsheets and returns and management calls? So I, one of the things that we did right when COVID happened, we got an email from Equinox that says, we're closing mm -hmm. Equinox. You're going to have to wear 50 masks and be 300 feet apart from everybody. So I was like, no, I've got to get a new place. So my wife and I moved out to the suburbs of Los Angeles and there's a detached unit in our house that has a gym and it's like a full gym that we built out. And that's like the one thing that I do. And right now I'm created and I'm now training for something that we're calling the Hunter Games which is like a CrossFit inspired three event competition, which again, it's like some of my friends, one of them is a division one rower, one of them is an Olympic trials swimmer. And so I'm going to get mopped up like I always do with these guys, but it's something to focus on and train for. And that's the answer. Wow. Love it. Love it. I recently bought mirror. I don't know if you've seen it. It's kind of, Oh yeah. It's the How mirror. It? When, I think it's great. I love it. I love cool. it. I just signed up for the December challenge. So it's almost every day you have a certain workout and cool. it's, it's, it's very cool. It's the closest thing I can have to an operating, you know, gym, which I, I still don't, I don't have the courage to go there. I can, I can, I, I adore and still do not understand people who, you know, take that risk. I just don't feel comfortable there. So hope I didn't just lose a bunch of listeners who are going to the gym these days, but <laughs> <laughs> that's the best that I can do. I just bought tons of, you know, kind of dumbbells and stuff in my house also in the cool. bottom level. Yeah. So Hunter, when you started out many, many years ago, what was the one thing that today's Hunter could have said to yesterday's Hunter, you know, as a piece of advice that you think would have made your life so much easier? Mm. So... I have the honest answer to this, though it's probably not going to resonate the way it should. At least mm -hmm. I wouldn't have understood what I was talking about. Obviously, that's the whole point of your question, right? <laughs> yeah. But I think that maybe you will be sympathetic to this. I was too focused on cash flow when I just got started. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say that is that I was willing to incur tertiary market risk in exchange for higher cap rates because I was, in my opinion, being a little short-sighted. You know, back then it was nine cap, seven, seven and a half, nine wow. cap, you know, that type of thing and B and maybe tertiary markets. But I didn't really run the math correctly. If you can add $100,000 of NOI to a 10 cap and you can add $100,000 of NOI to a five cap, that five cap goes a lot further. And if your plan is to implement a business plan that increases NOI, whether through expense reduction or income growth, the prime market, they're going to have more buyers and sellers. They're going to have more lenders. They're going to have more ability to transact in those areas. And the easiest way of saying all of that is that if something goes wrong, you always have a friend. You always have a friend that can help bail you out, whether it's a lender that can be more flexible, it's a new buyer, it's a seller. You have a bunch of people that you know that are interested in that market. If you're in 30 minutes outside of Austin, it's very different than being 30 minutes outside of Durham, right? And that's still a, a large city or Greensville, North Carolina or something. I've invested in all of those markets. And when push comes to shove, as much as we like to talk about tactics and strategies and software, it just matters who's your friend. And you just have a lot more friends investing in prime markets. All right. Very interesting. So, and maybe you already answered the next question, but what's your number one advice for a high net worth individual that wants to scale their portfolio? 
Being cautious about diversification, we created a conference that's coming out for past investors. I would check out IIREC2021.com. We have a lot of the operators that we work with. I think building relationships with top tier operators that have a great track record is the best way to do it. So Hunter, if somebody wants to reach out to you and invest with you, chat with you about investment, where can they find you? So again, thanks again for the opportunity. So if you're an active operator and you're interested in raising capital, we're putting together this free summit at 5millionin30days.com. And the numbers are 5 and 30, so 5millionin30days.com. And if you want to invest passively, you can learn more about that side of our business at asymcapital.com. All right, Hunter, thank you again for your time. I really appreciate it. It's, as always, been a pleasure. Awesome. Thanks a lot. All right, guys, that's it for today. Be bold, be great, and keep moving forward. And I'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.